is nothing sacred. Talk to Mad Magazine senior editor emeritus Joe Rayola, and you have to wonder. Today, Joe and I go back to the aha moment that awakened the comedian inside him to paying his dues amongst Eddie Murphy, Dice Clay, and other rising stars of the New York comedy scene, to landing work with National Lampoon alumni, and of course, with Mad. I'm Rod Mead Sperry of Lion's Roar. Welcome to episode three of After the Laundry, The Misery. We last left you as a comedian who thinks that he has nothing to offer the world, who's taking a little... Let's not overstate it now. I just said I was unemployable. (laughs) Okay. You really want to start there? I'll start crying. Well, a little drama might help this thing. So listen, in reality, you're obviously employable, and you've had an interesting career in comedy which goes back a ways. And I kind of want to talk about how you got into the game, so to speak. Well, it started really at an early age. It was miserable. It started with trauma. Having my, my tonsils taken out was the start of it. My mom and dad, do you really want to know this? Do you really want to know this? We can always edit it out if it's terrible. Good point. When I was uh, three or four years old, my mom and dad told me that I was going to a party when, in fact, I was going to have my tonsils taken out. Oh, that's cruel. Some doctor told him that that was the thing to do or something. (laughs) In any case, this is my first memory. And I remember being strapped to a gurney like Little Frankenstein and being wheeled into a room and the bright light shining down on me and either drugged up or strapped down or both and not being able to move. And I'm looking at the doctors and the doctor had this contraption in his hand, which was in fact an ether mask. But I of course didn't know that. I didn't know what it was. And I thought that this doctor was going to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that I was being executed. Parents had gotten rid of me, and this is how they were knocking me off. And the doctor has this thing on his hand, and he's moving his hand toward my face. And I remember shouting out, no, doctor, no, doc. That's all I got. No, doctor, no, doc. And this thing clamped on my face, and I thought I was dead. That was it. I woke up in a crib alone. Mm. And the first thing I did was I puked onto my pillow. So I turned the pillow over and I puked on that side of the pillow as well. I, I crawled to the other side of the crib and there was another pillow and I puked on it. I turned that pillow over and I puked <laughs> on that. Now I remember crawling to the middle of the crib oh, and I, I don't quite recall if I puked again at that point, but I, I faded off. And that is, this is my first memory. Jeez. God, this explains Fast. a lot. I don't know what you think it explains, but the, the <laughs> plot thickens. Okay. So I was three or four years old. Now later, I don't know how old I am. I'm nine or something. And I'm visiting my Aunt Nettie, and she's got a bunch of albums. And I'm looking through the albums, and one of the albums I see is not a music album. And on the front of the album is a photograph of a black man 
on a go-kart going down a hill, apparently out of control. And it says on the front of the album, Bill Cosby, Wonderfulness. Mm. And that looked interesting to me. So I put it on. The first track on that album is called Tonsils. Right. It's Cosby telling about when he had his tonsils taken out and how he was lied to and how he was promised ice cream. I was promised ice cream too, by the way. And how he never got the ice cream and how he thought that they were going to kill him. The whole deal. Cosby was telling his version of my story. What are the odds of that? Never heard of the guy. Young black man from Philadelphia telling this white kid's story in Brooklyn. <laughs> I knew then that I wanted to be a comedian because Cosby made my life better. And he made my story and my relationship to this horror better because he was able to see it from a perspective and through a lens that I could not at the time, but actually through Cosby, I was able to go there and see the humor in the trauma. So my course was fixed from that point on. I think it's worth mentioning that this kind of foundational comedy story as relates to Cosby is, is a common one. And it's, it's very common for people today to talk about Cosby only in light of the scandal forgetting about the fact that he really was a game-changing stand-up. Yes, in many ways. He was my hero. Isn't now, my... we should probably clarify. No, no. But, you know, you can still think O.J. was a great running back, you know. Right. And he, he was. Yeah, and Cosby was a great running back, too. I mean, Cosby was a great running back as well. Yes, well played. When I was in, uh, in sixth grade, when I graduated that class, we had a yearbook, a little dinky thing. And you had to say what you wanted to be when you, when you grew up. President, astronaut, race car driver, that kind of thing. I put down comedian. How were you doing with the girls at this time in your life? <laughs> uh you know, I was pretty busy uh, uh, chewing on pencils and sticking quarters up my nose. Right, um, right. And um, the girls weren't so attracted to that kind of kid. Yeah. So, I think a lot of comedy nerds, much less the people who actually become comedians, spend a lot of time not only bonding with a favorite comedian and an album, but learning the routine and doing them. You spend a lot of time learning tonsils and... Hofstra and other pieces like that? No, I didn't memorize them. I don't think I had the aptitude for that then, but I was influenced by comedy around me. Cosby was first. Mad Magazine certainly was an influence uh, a little bit later. And Mel Brooks and uh, the show Get Smart. That's a little bit later. Uh, that was Mel Brooks and Buck Henry were the creators of Get Smart. Don Adams was the actor, of course, who played yeah. Maxwell Smart. I did memorize some scenes from Get Smart. <laughs> did you have a bug to not only be a comedian, but to be a comic actor? Oh, well, yeah, I did. And still do in some ways, actually. I just wanted to be funny. That's the thing. I really didn't care how the laughs came. Um, this is something that anyone has ever become a stand-up knows about. There is this insatiable and inexplicable 
desire, neurotic desire to some degree, I suppose, to generate laughs. Didn't matter how. I remember I had a, a, a teacher when I used to do stuff. She would say, they're not laughing with you. They're laughing at you, meaning the other students. And I thought to myself, I don't care. Right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me whether they're laughing with me or at me. Do, do, do we laugh with or at the Three Stooges? Doesn't matter. Just wanted the laughs. It's weird. <laughs> That's how comedians are built. Sure, but how, how does a young man who decides to build himself into a comedian actually do that? How do you find yourself onto a stage, and at what point do you do this? Well, I started performing in junior high school. I did my first stand-up routine in junior high school, which was all lifted from a book. I remember the first joke I ever told on stage. Uh, it was, did you fill in that blank yet? And then the guy on stage would say, what blank? And I would say, the one between your ears. Cutting. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, it was really in high school when I started writing stand-up. Not even jokes. There were comic observations about forbidden things. I remember that I, I did like 10-minute bit that was known in Tottenville High School in Staten Island. It was the bathroom monologue, it was called. The bathroom monologue, which just all my insights, if you want to call them insights, that's really using that word loosely, about what goes on in the bathroom at the school. And no one ever talked about that, of course, in public. And the girls didn't know anything about it because it was like a foreign land. And I did impersonations of different kinds of styles of peeing. All this stuff felt very forbidden at the time. The styles of peeing? Styles of peeing, like some guys would hug the urinal. They'd push themselves right up against it, you know, because they didn't want to be seen. Other guys were more, they, they wanted to create the arcing they were like they were admiring their own flow. Uh, and then there were the peekers, the, the, the guys who would look, you know, at you or try to sneak a peek or never were probably some others. All this was really very bad. <laughs> right. But I got I got laughs doing it and I got in trouble doing it. Wow, that felt great to get in trouble. Oh, sure. Oh, my word. What could be better than getting in trouble? What's the venue? Are you doing this at a talent show? Or are you sitting there in the hallway doing an act? I was in a drama class, and this is the stuff I was, I was doing. We were challenged to write a play. I wrote an episode of Get Smart. That was my play. I believe I called it Get Smart. Really genius. But that's the stuff I was doing. And there was a monologue class where you would do a monologue. You know, you know people were learning Shakespeare. They were taking monologues from classic plays. They'd find something, you know, Arthur Miller wrote. I came in with the bathroom monologue. I don't know what the fuck to make of me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say, that's a monologue. I thought that's what you meant. Well, they kind of had to deal with me on some level. At an early age, in fifth or sixth grade, I was sent for treatment. I had to see a, a doctor. They said it was a play doctor at the time. I was tested. I had to spin jacks and, and, and play cards with an adult. I thought he was okay. But yeah, they thought I was disturbed. And I because, was. Did they think you were disturbed because your material was a little off color? Or did they think the fact that you wanted to act out at all and perform in this way was a sign of some sort of illness? I think it was the whole Joe package that they found. 
right. disturbing. Right. Not being able to sit, restless. I used to write this shit on my report card back then. No self-control. Needs to see a doctor about an apparent nervous condition. They actually wrote that for me to take home to my mother and father. So, I mean, I was pretty transparent in a lot of ways. I remember in high school, I was in love. I was so in love with this girl. I just loved her. Her name was Camille. I just adored her. And she really didn't want anything to do with me. And, and I asked her out and she said no. And then someone else asked her out. This guy named Stu asked her out and she went out with Stu. And I just, just was killing me. And they were making out in the in this study hall. They, you know, I'd get to study hall and they'd be, they'd be putting on like this display. They'd be necking for 35 minutes before homeroom. And I had a you know, watch it. It's just killing me. Oh, I know. You know, you, you've had that experience? Oh, yeah. Believe me, I hate Stu with every fiber of my being. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I, wrote a, I wrote a little play about this, a little vignette about this, uh, projecting the future. And Camille and Stu get married. They got married, and I was invited to the wedding as the best man, but I missed it, and I show up drunk, on their honeymoon night to stop them from having sex. That's the quote unquote, the play I write. And I actually write it and produce it and perform it. And it ends with me doing a strip tease. Okay. This is in high school. Wow. I, I know I'm not bragging. I'm really not bragging about any of this, but I was completely undefended and I, I had no skills really. This was all instinct. I was kind of like a, it's kind of like a squirrel. <laughs> just just running around here and there. But I was fearless, and fearlessness helped because a weird thing happened. I was not a good student. I mean, I mean, that's an understatement. I was a very bad student. I got like a 12 on the Spanish regents, and I think I 18 in chemistry. I mean, I'm a bad student, but I could perform, so that's what I did, and I just kept doing it. And oddly enough, I ended up getting a provisional scholarship to a school that I was really didn't have anywhere near the grades good enough to get into, Adelphi University, which is which is which is hardly Harvard, but uh, I got into this school as a provisional student based solely on this work I was doing in the drama class. I don't know if they were impressed by it or just took pity on me, but it was the only thing I was doing that I loved to do. So I just kept doing it. I know about Adelphi, by the way, because I'm a Hofstra man. Oh, really? So how does uh, a guy with all of these interests and, uh, let's say, peculiarities, <laughs> yeah. how does he parlay all of this into something professional? There's no parlay. There's just desperation. I had a plan upon entering college, and my plan was that when I got out, I was going to drive a taxi cab. That's what I did. That's a romantic That's a plan. Well, it didn't seem romantic at the time. My dad, who uh, was a, an insurance claims a adjuster, uh, when he lost his job, he, to make ends meet, drove a taxi cab in, in New York City for a while. So I guess like, like father, like son in that sense. But I thought, yeah, when I get out of the school, I'm not going to get a job as a comedian. I'll drive a taxi to make a living. And that was very freeing for those four years of college because everyone else – most everyone else was very serious, especially the people who were there to get a job. You know, they were studying uh, social work or psychology or, you know, something serious, business degree. I didn't give a shit about any of that. I was just writing and performing 
all through college. That's what I did. That's when I first got uh, on on radio at the college radio station. That's when I first started uh, writing. I had a column in the school newspaper. And now things really began to change because Monty Python's Flying Circus, they changed my life, revolutionized the way I thought of comedy. How so? Well, they were anarchists. <laughs> they were completely anarchists. You talk about fearless, talk about uncensored, talk about silly. These guys were intensely all of that. And uh, a good buddy of mine, my buddy Charlie Kadu, who uh, I went to high school with, and he was in the, that aforementioned drama class with me, he was a student at Hofstra while I was a student at Adelphi. Oh. They started writing together, and so if we did a radio show, we would do you know one version of the show at Adelphi, and we'd do the other version of the show at Hofstra. And when we did stage stuff, it was the same thing. Uh, we wrote stuff for the stage that we performed, and we did shows at Adelphi and shows at Hofstra. And the Pythons were big influences on us, really big influences. At the time, you know, I started college in 73, and graduated in 77. That was the era of National Lampoon, of course, and the era of Saturday Night Live, first season of Saturday Night Live with John, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the Pythons who really ignited me and Charlie and gave us permission to be utterly ridiculous because from our point of view, they just went way beyond anything Saturday Night Live was doing in terms of they were so surreal. They were they were outrageously irreverent. They, they weren't rooted in sketch. They didn't care if their material had a good ending. They'd move from one thing to, to another. They'd splice in four-second clips of old ladies clapping at the dumbest shit. I mean, they were just, <laughs> they were just fucking wild, and we loved them. They influenced all the work we did during that time, and, and they really influenced our comedic voices. And we just stayed with it, like I said. And then there is no parlay, and I, and again, I graduate, and it's, I'm, I'm driving a taxi, you know, and that's my life. Three days a week behind the wheel, the other three days a week writing comedy for God knows who. I don't know who I was writing it for. Sitting home, writing material, sketch material, stand-up material. And then starting to take it to the clubs and do the open mics. And it was the era of Catch a Rising Star and the comic strip and Pips. That was, those were the clubs in the New York comedy scene back then. And I went to them all. What was the first stage you actually stepped onto as a paid comic? As a paid comic? Oh, that's a different Well, question. you know, in an actual comic milieu, where, where did you, what was the first club that you played where you thought, geez, I'm playing a real club? I don't remember that exactly. I'm sure it was Catch or Comic Strip. It had to be one of those. It was a humiliating experience, the way that would work. Uh, for, for the Comic Strip, I believe you had to show up on Friday morning at 9 o'clock to pick a number oh. for your Monday night slot. So they humiliated you days before. You'd wait out there in the cold. And by the way, some of the clubs, and Comic Strip may have been one of them, they would award the numbers on a first-come, first-served basis. People would arrive at five in the morning because they wanted to get a good slot. Some of the clubs drew the numbers the same day. So they draw the numbers from Monday night on Monday morning. But even then, you got there at Monday morning, 
9 a.m. to draw your number at 10. And you don't go on for another 12 hours. You go back to home. For me, it was Queens. And go to sleep and, and then go back into the city again. It was really brutal. It was a brutal lifestyle. It was particularly brutal if you were like me, which, who wasn't very good. And it was really tough. Did you have a sense that you were not good at the time? Or did you think, hey, you know, I'm pretty good? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. There's, you can't think you're very good when no one's laughing. So how did you keep going? Well, I would make excuses at times. Like, for example, often in those early days, I wasn't taking the stage until after midnight. I might go on at 1245 on a Tuesday morning. A Monday night, Tuesday morning, I see the audience come and go and come and go. And I go out there and there'd be nine people in the audience. And I think, well, it's they're tired, nine people. In other words, I'd have some excuses. It'd be tough for anybody to make nine people laugh at that 1245 on Tuesday morning after the club's been open for five hours. But more often than not, I had a clear sense that I wasn't any good or wasn't doing well. And it's a really bad feeling. <laughs> <laughs> this feeling of utter worthlessness. Were there other people in this little generation of comics around you? The people who are listening to this now are going to obviously know the names of? Oh, yeah. Well, there were a bunch. When I got out of college and Charlie got out of college, we started performing together as the Chowder Brothers. And we were doing not sketch comedy, but we were just doing silly stuff, songs and commercial parodies and maybe mini sketches. And we were performing out on Long Island at a pretty well-known club in Roslyn called My Father's Place. I remember mm -hmm. it, was, it was the Long Island Haha -ha every Wednesday night. Eddie Murphy was a regular there. We used to open for his little group. Eddie was in a group called the Identical Triplets. And it was two white guys and Eddie Murphy. They got the biggest laughs of the night all the time. I remember their bit more than ours in a way. They would say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the identical triplets. And the first guy would walk out, who I think was Bob Nelson, who went on to have a pretty good career himself. And he's white. Yeah. And then uh, Rob Bartlett comes out, who went on to have a great career. But there's a big laugh because Rob Bartlett looks nothing like Bob Nelson. And then now please welcome Irish Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> right. And the place would go nuts. Now, this was before he was on Saturday Night Live. You know, I, I met him once or, or twice. I mean, we weren't friends or anything like that. But, you know, this there was real talent on that stage with, with those guys. I remember a night of the club. I think it was Comic Strip when I was performing solo. You know, I had a number, it was like number nine or something, or number 10, which meant I was going on like 11 or 20 or something like that. And I'm about to take the stage, I'm next in queue, and the MC comes over to me and says, hey, you're being bumped, Rodney's here. Ooh. Rodney Dangerfield was there, he just showed oh, up. Yeah. I'll never forget that, but he was great. By the way, my my mad colleague John Ficarra, before his mad days, wrote for Rodney. I did not know that. Yeah, John, in those, in those early days, uh, wrote a bunch of one-liners for Rodney. At any rate, Rodney um, does his act, and now I follow Rodney. I got to go on after oh, him. I'm so sorry. I get out there, I grab the mic, and I say, got to tell you, my career is on the upswing, folks. Rodney Dangerfield opened for me tonight. <laughs> And I got a big laugh. 
and a smattering of applause. That's when the truck hit me. That day, I don't remember a thing after that. It did not go well at all. So, yeah, there was this was the era of the comedy boom. There were people around, Larry Miller and Jerry Seinfeld, Andrew Dice Clay, who started at Pips, and I crossed paths with at a club called Good Times on 3rd Avenue, I think. And so there were people who were really talented. You could see it. But it was never in an environment that I mastered. I never mastered the clubs. Even when I had some success, and I did have some success there, it was never a place that I felt really comfortable in. I didn't want to be one of the Chowder brothers. Charlie and I were doing that. I didn't want to be Joe Chowder. I just never really found my voice, my comic voice in that environment. And I got to tell you, to this day, there's a part of me that's deeply disappointed that I didn't, even though that I, I perform regularly and I think myself as a you know pretty good performer now, and I'm actually getting back on the road this year, and I, I performed in 44 states. I mean, it's not like I haven't had a career as a performer. I have, but I was never able to master the club. Not really. It's a pressure cooker. There's no constant, you know? Well, the only constant is that you're up there alone. And right. that's still a great challenge about solo performing, which I love. I like that direct connection with the audience. I like, uh, I won't say a, a confrontational approach. That's probably what I liked least about the comedy clubs. I didn't like feeling like I, that I had to be funny quickly and the kind of confrontational vibe between performer and audience, which a lot of comedians master and, and thrive on. And you know what I mean? The language in the comedy world, if you don't do well, you bomb. And if you do well, you kill. Right. The whole bomb kill thing, I needed to get out of that to find my voice as a performer. I was never going to thrive or flourish working on a five or seven minute set at a club. I wanted an hour in a theater with that permission to do whatever I wanted to do, to be funny when I wanted to be funny and not be funny when I didn't want to be funny would, would be freeing for me. And it was, and ironically, actually, you know, I could play a club now when I do it now and then and I work with the uh, laughing liberally group here in New York now and then when they invite me in for a show and I'm, and I'm fine there, but I go into the club on, on my own terms. I'm not a set up punchline guy. I've never been that. You found your footing when you kind of came around to where you started with monologuing in a way. Right? Yeah. Additionally, I think that what we find is you probably made the most notable mark by, um, well, maybe this is untrue. Maybe you don't agree with this, but I know you because of Matt. And before Matt, there was work with National Lampoon alumni. Right. When you took yourself off of the stage that you found your voice in a different way? Uh, there's something to that. Oddly enough, at first, it felt almost like a, a failure. Very strange to be suffering from that kind of low self-esteem. A lot of comedians do that. A lot of humorists do that. When I started getting, uh, I got my first professional work, which was with National Lampoon alumni in the early 80s on a series of national magazine spoofs. We were doing stuff like Cosmo Parody and, and Like a Rolling Stone. There were a series of them. I want you to know, I remember them well. I would run to Howard's, which was the newsstand, and mm. I would buy every single one of these things. I devoured them. It breaks my heart I don't have them today. Ah, 
And I had no idea, of course, that you were part of that. Yeah, I mean, that was a twist of fate, a little bit of luck there. there were, one of these issues was, uh, it was a Playboy parody with a, a Princess Die centerfold. And my buddy Charlie, he submitted some stuff. And they hired him. They told him, he told him about me, and they ended up hiring me. And our first professional work was, I guess it was 1983 or four. Uh, I remember it was uh, March that year, and the big hit on the radio was Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. And we were working for a month at spring break on a daily newspaper called The Sun, just writing this humorous column called Beach Beat. What we didn't know, this the publisher of this was Jerry Taylor, who was a former publisher of National Lampoon, and was the publisher of all these one-shot magazine parodies that we're speaking about and uh, Jerry liked us and the editors liked what we were doing. And that led to our really first real, real professional work. And that was on Cosmo parody with Joan Rivers on, on the cover of it. And that's when we met Tony Hendra and Sean Kelly and really, really worked with some of those legendary Lampoon figures. You know, I was almost 30. You know, when you get that first gig with real comedy writers, it, that, something about that that is very satisfying, even though part of me felt like a failure because I wasn't on stage. Yeah, I understand that. But I recall that work with such a fondness. I remember my uh, cover line. It was a writer's pool, basically, and cover lines were tough to get because there were like eight or nine cover lines that were going to be on the Cosmo parody front cover. And... They probably got a hundred lines written as possible cover lines, maybe more, maybe two hundred. And the line that I got in was, "Is there mustard on your head?" A quiz. <laughs> that was my line. I also learned about some other things. As I say, Joan Rivers was on the cover of that issue. Now, at the time, Joan Rivers was just about the biggest comedy star in the country, and she was hosting the tonight show when johnny carson was on vacation and there was rumor that she was going to take the show over or that she was going to start her own show with the cover of cosmo parody was going to be joan rivers she was going to have her left hand on her left hip with kind of a sassy look and then you know she was going to have her right hand under her left breast just kind of cupping it up and forward and showing it and that was the joke well she couldn't do it or she wouldn't do it but everyone was unhappy with the shoot. I don't know what it was. I, I think it was probably that she felt too inhibited. And as a result, the image we got really didn't look like much of anything. It was just, it looked like just Joan Rivers on the cover of Cosmo Parody. There was no joke. That's right. No visual joke. Well, now you know why there was no visual joke, because Joan wouldn't do it. So we timed the issue to hit the stands on a Monday when Joan is hosting The Tonight Show. And part of the deal is that she's going to hold the magazine up and give it like a 15-second plug. Now, this is a big deal on The Tonight Show, right? Yeah. Well, she holds it up, doesn't say anything about it, says, look at this piece of trash, and she rips it up and throws it over her shoulder on camera. Jerry Taylor was not happy about this. <laughs> he gets on the phone with Joan Rivers, I'm sure, or I heard. I have no doubt that this is, in fact, true, and gives her an earful or gives her agent an earful, as the case may be. And the next day or the day after that, because she's hosting The Tonight Show the whole week, she holds the magazine up 
and she gives a proper 15-minute plug for it, letting everyone know that this is on sale now, and she is, in fact, the cover girl of this parody magazine called Cosmo Parody. You know, I know that Joan Rivers is a revered figure in the comedy world, and for good reason, but my experience working with her, this was my very first comedy gig, I thought, my God, and uh, they must like what we were doing because then, then Charlie and I worked on a series of them with that group. And I don't think I realized at the time how fortunate I was to really work with some of the National Lampoon greats in what really was, I think, their last period together as a team. Some of them. And, and we were part of that. Obviously, what comes next is your time at MAD, you and Charlie together. Um, you may remember that it used to be something called a newspaper, um, and they were printed daily and weekly. This is not ringing a bell. It really goes back a long way. There was something in these papers called classified ads. One fateful week, I guess it was in 1984, Charlie saw an ad in the New York Times, and I saw an ad in the Village Voice. Uh, Mad had uh, taken an ad in both of those fine publications uh, advertising that they were looking for new writers. And out of the same breath, we both said, hey, did you see the classified ad for Mad? And we submitted stuff. And that's really as simple as that. And uh, we sold it. Well, I'm sorry to hear it's as simple as that, because I was thinking it was going to be a little more interesting than that. And I wanted to talk about it at length. <laughs> okay. Well, as fate would have an Al Feldstein editor for 28 years, up until 1985, during what, what I would consider Mad's most important period, when Al Jaffe and Sergio Aragones and Antonio Projias and Mort Trucker and all those great talents were coming to Mad, uh, and Mad was really establishing itself as a, I'm going to say, revolutionary cultural force. Al was at the helm for all that, and he was stepping down, so we were, we were hired. Al was stepping down, but Meglin was where? Well, Nick Meglin, who started at MAD in the 50s, uh, was still on the editorial staff. So uh, Nick would have been next in line. But actually, what Gaines decided to do was appoint co-editors. And Nick Meglin and John Ficarra became co-editors, thereby creating the two-headed Gila monster. And Charlie and I were brought in uh, on the bottom end, uh, creating the, kind of the two-headed Gila monster on the on the more or less youthful side, although John was pretty young too. The reason why Nick didn't become the, the editor by himself simply was, uh, I don't think that Nick had the organizational skills. It wasn't about talent. Nick was always uh, sharp and funny and a great visual sense also, but he wasn't the most organized fellow. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, Bill felt that John would be a, a big help in that area. And they were a great team actually in a lot of ways because uh, John uh, was a, a really great comedy writer and that combined with, I think, Nick's really sharp visual sense. So, yeah, that's it. The rest, the rest is history. I was never able to get out of there, but God knows I tried. I tried. Uh... We've got another episode coming soon, but in the meantime, you can always visit joerayola.com for more from Joe. And for more from me, Rod Mead Sperry, and my colleagues at the Leading Buddhist Magazine and website, check out lionsroar.com or check out I Wanna Be Well, How a Punk Found Peace and You Can Too 
the new book by Miguel Chen and myself. Thanks for listening to After the Laundry, The Misery.